I'm Sam Johnson, the oppressed and persecuted. Joining me is Alex and Troy. And Chloe, let's not forget. And Chloe, she didn't read the book. She doesn't matter. I might chime in. Uh, um, She'll definitely chime in. So today (laughs) we read the second half of Flannery O'Connor. I believe it's chapter seven to the end, right? Correct? Correct. So um, to start this off, actually, um, Chloe, myself, and... Chloe, myself. <laughs> Pull it together, Poppy. Chloe, myself, and Troy saw an, a uh, movie called Jojo Rabbit. Oh, yeah. We invited Troy to our date, and we had a splendid time. Yeah, we did. I still dress like a We slut, finally though. got a third. It was awesome. Not the way I wanted, but. Yeah, but it was not zero. Or the one but, I wanted. Know, not. It was unexpected, but pleasant. <laughs> but we saw the movie, Such a and, good movie, and what did we think oh. about the movie? Troy, you kick it off because you're the most sophisticated. I don't know that I would say that, but I thought it was a good movie. It was better than I thought it would be. Um, the just on the nose Nazi stuff as humor I thought would be overdone, but it actually hit pretty well. Um, especially there's a scene where they go in and it's originally from MASH when they're like, doctor, doctor, doctor. And they do it like 25 times, except they come in and it's the SS to inspect their house. And it's like, Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler. And they do it like 25 times. I thought they were going to stop after the first five, but then like two more. And they did three full sets because comedy comes in threes. It's true. It's true. It's very true. No, but the movie for those who have not seen Jojo Rabbit, it's like an indie, like sweet comedy about uh, how a little boy, how like a little Hitler youth kid in um tail end of nazi germany um you're like following him as he discovers that his mother is hiding a jew in their like in their walls basically and this little kid has hitler as an imaginary friend because he's in love with hitler and um you watch this little boy this 10 year old boy process the absolute mind fuck that is that was nazi germany and um it's ultimately very heartwarming i fucking cried and it's funny and i thought like beautifully shot in the the um, Scarlett Johansson does a great job. She does. Movie. She really solid, does. Solid flick. And to your point about the humor aspect of it, what I found most profound was the Hitler imaginary character, right? So it was very lighthearted, and there was a lot of, you know, when that scene when JoJo goes and grabs the grenade, right? And, you know, he's like, I am JoJo Rabbit, you know, and it's like his imaginary friend Hitler is running around, he looks goofy, and he's jumping. And you get this sense of connection with Hitler, right? But then as the story develops and as Jojo finds connection, um, what was, I'm sorry. The, what with was, the Jew girl in the wall? Yeah, but what was her name? Elsa. Elsa. Find her his connection with Elsa. He eventually rejects Hitler. And it wasn't in this, you know, half-hearted, like, oh, I found liberal democracy kind of way. It was in a, It was in a much more profound personal sense, right? where he found this like not 
love of other people, but love of a person. You know, he he was he was able to find a connection with someone. And because of that connection, he kicked Hitler through the fucking window. And that was a pretty like funny scene. And but it it really it really used the like over the top physical humor as a way of conveying a certain profoundness about that experience that I really didn't expect. I really because that mode of way that way of approaching something like Nazism is so easy to fuck up. Right. It is. Like, you can approach that in a way that comes off as very cringy or, like, doesn't quite hit the mark. But Movie one, cringe. But Jojo Rabbit really, really struck, like, right in that, like, if it was a bullseye, right? Like, it's right, it's not quite a bullseye, but it's right around I'll disagree. It. And I think, I think, for me, what was most profound about the movie was the way you viewed, it was a new way to view, like, the most hammered on, like, subject matter, which is, like, Nazi Germany. Um, there's the History Channel. That's all they do. And yet there was something we saw it through a new perspective, which was a 10 year old ideologue's eyes. And that ideologue changed throughout the movie. But Nazi Germany did not change. Like the imaginary Hitler friend was goofy and lovable almost in the beginning. But he was still Hitler. Just Hitler as a 10 year old. It would imagine him that as this 10 year old became less enchanted with the Third Reich, Hitler stayed Hitler, but Hitler got nastier. And that was really profound to me. That was my favorite part of the movie, actually, is that his imaginary friend, which is obviously the battle within his own mind, turns on him. Like Hitler is yelling and cussing him out at the end. Like, how dare you do this? He's a dirty Jew, blah, blah, blah. But he has been de-radicalized by that point. And that's when at the very end he kicks him out the window. But I thought that the imaginary friend part was the good comic relief that was needed. Like, there's other comedy in the movie, but that just kind of gave it a levity that I don't know how else you would have created other than Hitler is my imaginary friend. And got us to see the movie. That was honestly the gimmick that got us to buy tickets. So just brilliant in that respect. I will say as well, and, you know, just to add about the comic relief, Jokey, the Not the kid's name, but you're so close. No, it's Jokey. Or sounded like Yorkie to me, like a a fucking York peppermint patty. Whatever his, like... His thick like, little friend. His fellow his, fat ass, yeah, the fat ass Nazi was so cute. Thick bitch friend. Oh, he was so cute. Yeah, the kids Yoki. are adorable. Oh, he was there's so cute. Gay, there's a gay like uh, not like Nazi war captain who puts on a fancy costume at one point. Like it is a god, and just like Yoki with that scene towards the end where he's he's carrying the bazooka, right? And you know Berlin is being invaded by. You know this this timeline is not accurate because the Russians actually take Berlin and the oh, Americans the are never are there. Nice. But the you know Yoki is carrying a some sort of you know anti tank weapon with some other twelve year old, and he's going by and he drops it, and the the tank shell goes into a a, a store and blows it up, and he's just like, oh man, not again. And he's this like little chubby guy. And then um, Jojo walks with him and he's like, and Jojo's like, uh, yeah, I have a, I have a Jew in my house. And, uh, you know, we're like basically boyfriend, girlfriend. And he's like, wow, that's so great for you, Jojo. And at one point he's like, there's, we have tougher things to worry about, about than the Jews. <laughs> you should see these Russians. It's just like, he, oh, it's and what was though. it? It was like, oh, they're going to, they're going to kill everybody and they're going to, they're going to, f- rape our dogs and we have to protect our you know we don't want them to fuck all of our dogs yeah it's like the the vitriol filtered through a kid's like literal understanding of it is like so fucking funny it was really funny yeah, yeah. just that 
like yeah jews are bats and they have fangs but through the literalism of a child was really funny and like remember being kids like you hear stuff like that for a minute you're like i guess that's what it is you know and there is something very fucked up ex-hitler youth kids and there's just something very um there's something just innately profound about a child experiencing something because they oh they're they they're enter so the with world wonder yeah and they're, and they're just, so smooth they just enter the world with such trust yeah, in their stable. surroundings <laughs> right especially if they're stable it's not like it's not like nazi households weren't get like that they that some of them were stable right some of them were trustworthy they were kind to their children and their wives and you know it was a uh you know, what we could say healthy household to to grow up in. You heard it here, folks. Um, so, so for a child, right? You are you are exposed to this environment. You naturally trust the things around you, and some of those things you trust are absurd. And I think that has at least some sort of bearing on how we experience our own childhood, right? What kind of absurd things do we believe? My you oh, know, the go to example would be religion, right? You know, you you believe the religion of your parents because. You know, I don't know. I grew up in a good household. They seem like good people. I, you know, they must believe good things, right? Question. And if you want to call in our hotline and chime in on this, also, anyone have an imaginary friend growing up, Hitler or non-Hitler? I'm mentally fucked up, but I wasn't that fucked up. Me either. Am I the only one? Yeah, fucking one of you. Go ahead, Troy. Uh, my favorite part of the movie was when. Jojo first finds out that oh maybe she's not an evil monster maybe I just like her a little bit and then Hitler is like laying down in bed because it's past his bedtime and he's like in his full um like khaki regalia he's like is this Vied I think I I think this is Vied <laughs> and it was just so absurd I love absurdist comedy that's my favorite strain of Agreed. comedy it was it was just so well done ten out of ten recommend watch the fun alex when it goes on to um do you have netflix yeah i just got it I, it doesn't sound like anything i'd like so i probably won't watch it oh it's really cute what oh, are you right? talking you'll, about you'll it's a really good movie what do you what movies do you even fucking like like die hard like clint eastwood no movies. it's it is charming it's good it's, it's action-packed too it's like it's good I really want you to watch it. All you right. have to watch it. I would right. kill you right, if you don't right. watch it. I just I don't like sentimental movies. It's not that sentimental. All right, I'll watch it's it. It's a comedy with what do you sentimentality. Mean you don't like sentimental movies. That's like yeah, Jesus. I don't I don't like sentimental movies and I also don't like comedies. I think that the end of the movie I was actually kind of depressed at the end. I don't know why the fall really, of Nazi Ber- Germany made you upset. No, the fall of Berlin does. Just like <laughs> the, the like I told you guys this in the theater that like Stalingrad and Leningrad were just as bad. Stalingrad what about the Holocaust? It was probably worse. Troy? I know, but those fucking German. Those aren't I'm comparable I let events. You in my goddamn home. Like and six million, baby. I know, but an six extermination million. of people versus I got a the siege small of a city. Family on that side. You want to explain it yeah, to me? Yeah, I feel you. I feel you, Troy. Like they're not comparable. Troy doesn't care about the Jews. In what way are they not comparable? Like a death camp versus a siege of an army on a city. Yes. Yeah, like, I, I feel like oh, sieges okay. yeah, sieges things. are yeah. comparable. Like obviously the Holocaust was worse, but yeah, Berlin was just I don't know. I read too much about it, and it made me sad because it's like, oh yay, the Americans are here at the end of the movie. But in reality, like the girl would have been raped and killed, and Jojo would have just been shot in the head. Oh, totally right. I remember reading a book about the fall of Berlin when I was in middle school. I don't remember even what the name of the book was, and just being blown away by just like the devastation of the city 
and like the psychological devastation of the people who lived in the city. I was fucking fine with it. I'm not saying I'm not fine with it, honestly, but I'm just saying like that's sometimes a... some women and children need to got they got to go. Yeah, but it, no, but I just mean like in terms of like the mass psychological effect is just it's interesting. I don't know. Also, maybe it's just because like my heritage is German. Obviously, I'm not pro Nazi in any sense. Um, but like, there are so many civilians in there, especially at the end. Kids like JoJo were put on the front line. Like even mm. after Hitler killed himself, the SS was still executing people for being traitors. Basically, they would give them a pistol, send them out to the front line against Russian tanks, and if they didn't, they came back and they were hung. Like, I feel for the civilians. I like another interesting parallel is um, uh, Japan, mainly mainland Japan, preparing for the Allied invasion. The stories you hear about oh, that yeah, 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 yeah. is it's unreal. Like they were Training just arming little boys to die for the emperor. <laughs> Not even with guns. They were giving them long wooden shafts. Yeah, like it's like incredible. Sticks. It's unreal. Like they they were prepared to fight just to the oh, sin- absolute oh. end. Alex should see that movie my way, Sam. I think if anybody wants to get a good Japanese perspective, there's two movies I recommend. One is uh, Grave of the Fireflies, which is two kids that are hiding in a fallout shelter during fire bombings. And then the other one is actually by Clint Eastwood, which is Letters from Iwo Jima, which is fantastic. It's basically just a civilian who doesn't want to be in the army, but the Kempei Tai, which was the um, Japanese SS, basically just conscripted him and was like, yeah, you're going to be here. You're going to die. And just like how terrifying it is for someone who doesn't want war, who's not a fascist, but you can't get out because your society is stuck in it. Yeah. Japan bad. Yeah, that's right. Imperial Japan bad. We'll say it. No, it's pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) The dissenting voice. Well, I mean. Real Mishima hours. But anyway, yeah, Imperial Japan was generally good. I'm just kidding. God damn it. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, you know. All right, cucks. Uh, all right, I'm going to log off, boys. I'll catch you at the end. 978-255-3404. That's 978-255-3404. Hotline bling, baby. If you want to call what? us and leave a voicemail, we will read it on the air. Tell us something no, we nasty. Will, we will play it on the air. Oh, we'll, we'll play it. Yeah, we'll play it. Yeah, tell us something weird. Yeah, and we'll uh, we'll respond. We'll have our hot takes. Yeah. So or like talk about the books has, you they're reading. If anybody yeah. has strong opinions on Imperial Japan um, against, but mostly for. Ask for advice because you won't believe it. But we're actually highly qualified professionals. Yeah. All right. So we ready to get into Flannery? Yeah. All right. Let's do some Flannery. So like John McCain. Flannery O'Connor was also, um, she was psychologically tortured. And I wanted to ask, um, so we <laughs> I like the ham-fisted uh, transitions. This is like a... That was a great transition. You're really just forcing them. It's a pretty good bit. Why are you holding your iPad 40 feet away from you? <laughs> you you're looking at it like you need your readers. Oh, it's fine. Whatever. Do you need um, readers? So Sweetheart. One of the questions right. I wanted to ask was that... Um, so. The big turning point in this novel is when uh, when Francis goes out with Bishop into the lake. And one of the things that confused me about that was that Raber, um, in his reactions in the novel, was very calm about it, right? And just kind of like, oh, Francis is going to, you know, do this nice thing and I want to be alone. But internally, 
I mean, Raper's not a dumb guy, right? Like he kind of knows what could happen out there, and I it kind of seemed like he wanted it. I, I don't know what you guys thought about that. I mean, I think it's kind of clear he did want it, even if he didn't actively want it. It's one of those like passive desires where he sees his son as as a burden and obviously he's try, has tried to kill the son in the past that i think it's like a way of kind of assuaging his guilt by letting it happen he's also he's annoyed with the ho or the motel owner for like caring about bishop he's like stop it just ignore him and i don't know that was really sad to me like somebody actually cared about bishop for once and he's like stop it so i feel like for raber he I like him. He's an interesting character. He's definitely not a hero by any sense, but he like takes a very dark turn at the end here just because he's ready to get rid of both Tarwater and Bishop, and he just decides to let them do each other in. He's like, you know what? I give up on this kid. I'm not going to fix him anymore. He can just go off into the world and be crazy, and maybe he'll kill my Down Syndrome son on the way. And he just like washes his hands of it. But I think O'Connor at least from Raber's psychological point of view, doesn't, like, Raber doesn't understand that's the conclusion, right? He is pretty explicit about the idea that not only does he have some faith in the fact that Francis is going to act good, right? He puts on the right clothes, and he goes out with um, with Bishop, and at least from Raber's point of view, he's acting, Francis is acting in good faith, and it's only with Bishop's scream that he hears over the, the... lake that he realizes what happened and it did feel a bit insincere that he felt that like sense of dread but it's not so clear that he like he desired it subconsciously but he didn't desire it consciously at least as far as o'connor's writing is concerned no i think consciously i think he may have thought oh the worst thing that's going to happen is he'll baptize him right which did not matter to him at that point i think he gotten past the point of caring about that matter of principle but then when it comes to the fact that he realizes his son may be dead, I think, you know, he felt that nothingness, but I think there's also like an element of relief there. No, I agree. I think he probably thought that he was just going to get baptized and he had given up at that point. But he seems to be going kind of rapid cycling through emotions of being okay and then not okay with things. And actually, my only gripe with this whole novel is he goes to bed at like two, three in the afternoon and then he wakes up and it said the sun is like just going down or had just gone down. And then he heard the scream. It's like, what the hell were the two boys doing on the lake for the last four hours before he decided to drown him? Yeah, I mean, he says he was just, they were staring at each other, right? In the boat, just eyes locked. Oh, God, that's creepy. I must have missed that part, but that's disturbing. It's a creepy image. Yeah, it really is. Um, so another thing I wanted to bring up was this stranger as a literary tool what i mean so obviously the stranger represents something in francis's psychology but what does it represent so the obvious like christian analogy is like is it god or is it the devil or is it like just an apparition i'm not sure like what i understand what its function in the novel is as far as a literary device but what what symbol is o'connor trying to represent here but it also could be madness Sure, but I just because of O'Connor's Catholicism, like I think there is something more to this. Maybe not, but but I don't, I don't think to a Catholic, I don't think the image of the the God and the Devil on your shoulders from the cartoons is one that's born of Catholicism. You know? No, but I agree, or I agree with you, Sam, that I think that 
there is an old timey, especially in American religion, just this idea that the devil's a real person, like walking around somewhere out there. I don't think that Flannery ever explicitly says that it's evil. I think that in honesty, it's madness. But in it, it I don't know, I got kind of an eerie feeling whenever he would talk about the stranger where it was madness, but it felt as if she was describing a demon or the devil because it felt like somebody was standing behind him saying it to him instead of Francis thinking it himself. I think reality, it was madness, but she portrays it very subtly as kind of evil, but without actually saying it's the devil. But it still made me think of that. So I think just props to her. She didn't actually say it, but she alluded to it enough where it made sense to me. I think maybe I don't I don't think that Flannery O'Connor believes in the devil in that way by any means. I don't think that is something that you would find commonly in Catholics. So I don't know if that's necessarily like I might be overthinking about Flannery O'Connor herself as the author rather than the characters and the novel itself. I think she had enough writing chops to distance herself from it. I forget what the essay was, but in my compendium book that I checked out from the library, in the essay she talked about how, no, she doesn't just want to write about people that she likes or that she can comprehend. She wants to write reprehensible people or something that's completely foreign. Like all of these characters are Protestant, and she obviously is not Protestant, so... I don't know. I think she's able to distance herself enough from it, even if she didn't personally believe in like a man in black walking around as the devil. I guess my problem might be is that I have a hard time distancing the author from the work in this book. Well, but I, you know, I mean, O'Connor was a devout Catholic, right? Like, and I'm not saying like she may be poking fun at Protestants, right? In their sense of personal revelation that doesn't come through the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, but. Uh, Catholics definitely have a sense of demons that is not a that is not absent from the Catholic theology. They have exorcisms. Yeah, that's true. They totally do, and so you know it's not unbelievable. Even if she even if she is poking fun at Protestants, uh, it if that is what she is doing, it come you know if that how is how I would interpret it, it would be disingenuous because her whole you know religious hierarchy does have that tradition um even though she you know and of course it would have that tradition in america because catholicism wasn't like a separate it was separate in some sense in american culture but it it wasn't you know it's still intermingled right and that whole sense of revelation and um you know the idea of having uh i don't know like divine experiences was still profound in all of american culture so i think that um, maybe O'Connor isn't trying to say anything with, else with that. And I think, uh, Troy, I agree with you that there is a, I mean, there's clearly a devil bent, right? Because the stranger is often talking about, like, how can God prove things to you, right? Like, you can't wait for the, the you know, the happenstance occurrence. You need, like, a definite sign that this is God. And um, Francis only gets that at the end, right? And he doesn't even really get it. Right. It's just like enough of a set of coincidences that he can believe that he can then go to the city and preach. It's not it's a burning bush, but it's a burning bush he created. So I I don't really even know what to make of that. I think that with um, especially at the end, I agree that I think that she obviously disagrees with Protestants. And I don't know that I'd say she's poking fun at them, 
but she definitely kind of disparages the way that evangelicals especially believe as it being cheap and manipulative and false and i also read just on my own time wise blood her other novel and it also comes through in that and it kind of supported what i had originally thought about the end of this book which is yeah she just thinks that it's either madness or false and then the idea of being jesus haunted is very protestant the fire and brimstone element of it versus the stability and hierarchy of catholicism um and i mean the madness definitely comes through for tarwater but also at the same time i I don't even disagree with any of that but this this voice in his head the stranger is more refuting the teachings or attempting to refute the teachings of the uncle than it is of god right that's how i interpret it is it's more of kind of trying to it's it's the stranger is contradicting the teachings of the uncle and trying to poke holes in the teaching of the uncle more so than the existence of god himself i don't think that's ever in question for uh tarwater well i think I think, though, it is pointing at something more profound because it's pointing at the existence of God itself, right? Like, if God exists, God will behave this way, right? If you are a prophet, then God will behave this way. I mean, it doesn't explicitly throw that in, but it's not as if, you know, like, Raber is an atheist, right? And Raber's point of view and his his presence in the novel is as a non-believer. And so it's not like... You know, like O'Connor could have chosen Raber as a, um, you know, I don't know, a Unitarian Universalist or a Quaker or something like that, a deist, and put in relief this sort of orthodox religiosity with a maybe more liberal, ortho- you know, religiosity. But she chose an atheist, somebody who doesn't believe. And so I actually do think God, God's existence itself is what's at stake here, not really what kind of God is is in existence i think it's alluded to that the stranger is or i definitely got the hints of it being the devil or something eerie and mysterious but i also do agree with you alex that it's refuting primarily the uncle but it's also questioning god in general just because that's what he himself is it's his inner monologue or his inner dialogue rather and what he's experiencing and i guess it's eerie for him because he's breaking free of his uncle's craziness but he also can't handle it like whenever the stranger comes around he ends up drinking but this another thing is that the stranger isn't present throughout the majority of the book the stranger is present at the beginning and the end right so it's really like the stranger is present you know during extreme moments where death where death is involved like that's when the stranger comes into play. The stranger comes into play directly after the uncle dies, and the stranger comes back into play after Bishop is dead. Yep. But what does that mean? I mean, the stranger, like death, is often called the stranger. So I think there's just like multiple layers of meaning to it. I think that's all. That's true for the entire book. There's multiple meanings to everything throughout this whole book. Yeah, I'd really agree with that. I think there's no like straight answer for a lot of this. But I just think. Like, and you know, I'm not going to harp on this because I don't know enough about O'Connor, but she's a Catholic and, you know, it's not like she's Camus, right? She's not trying to make an absurdist point about the world. Um, And maybe she is. I don't know. But like somebody who is a devout Catholic and, you know, believes in a church that has such hierarchy, it's very hard for me to believe that she is trying to make some like, you know, statement about the senselessness of the universe, right? 
Um, maybe the senselessness of Protestantism, that could be what she's trying to get across. But I, I'm very hesitant to like buy into the idea that she's like, oh, you know, this whole set of experiences, like they have no grip on reality um, unless it's in some relief to the organization of Catholicism. But I don't know what her religion her religious beliefs were outside that she was a devout Catholic. Do you have any more insight, Alex? No. I'm thinking a lot about it right now. Okay, well, keep thinking. One thing that I wanted to Beautiful. bring up while Alex is thinking on the subtleties of the novel is one thing that was very <laughs> on the head. Something that was very on the head is uh, as Tarwater's on his way home, somebody picks him up and rapes him. That just came out of what? left field. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I was like, all right, like Bishop died. Like I could kind of see that coming. He's probably going to go home, become a religious prophet. Okay, I could pretty much see that coming. That's been set up. And then it's like, nope, on his way home, somebody picks him up. Is actually first a trucker, and the trucker wants him to keep him awake, but he just refuses because he's an obstinate kid or teen, and then he kicks him out, and then somebody else picks him up. Doesn't say who it is, but... He should have remembered him. So that makes me think that it was the previous... Um, it was Meeks, right? Meeks, yeah, yeah, the traveling salesman. But yeah, he just like wakes up, his clothes are all folded up, and he's naked. And I was like, it was, whoa! It was, supposed, it was supposed to be Meeks? I've I mean, never... I've read this book twice. I never picked up on that. Well, I mean, he, he said that he had recognized him. He should have recognized him. He seemed familiar. And so our... Both... Troy and I's like point of view was like maybe that was Meeks. I don't know if that was what the intention was. Do you think it was more that he was like the stranger? It's just I don't know. Like the stranger was a psychological manifestation. It's hard for me to believe that as a person. Yeah, yeah, because this guy in the car gives him dosed liquor and weed. Yeah, and gets him fucked up. And to be honest, like I'm not saying that that wasn't a dramatic part of the book, but it felt a hundred percent unnecessary. Right, like. As a literary tool, it felt excessive and not pointful. So you're going to introduce the rape of a child into this story as a way to what dramatize it? Like, it's already a dramatic book, and it didn't actually add anything. Like, if that part was left out completely, you would have had still a great novel. So I don't know exactly what the point was there. I would agree. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little much, and but it, you know, obviously, it serves the point of just kind of pushing him over, pushing him over that edge. Yeah, but to what end? Because it wasn't even like the psychological aspects of sex were like a big part of this book, right? It wasn't. No, sex is not involved in this book really whatsoever, aside from calling his female relatives whores. Right, exactly. So it's just like it, it, it glares out as something that was not dealt with in the book at all, but then suddenly is and. Especially like something like, you know, it's not pedophilia because he wasn't prepubescent, but like, you know, the, well, we have to make distinctions here. Um, but, you know, the molestation of a, of a uh, teenage boy, like what, you know, what purpose was that part of the novel supposed to serve? I'm not sure. And it didn't even, it contributed to his his tr- like Francis's transition to a, a a preacher, but even like the him Francis discovering that Francis discovering that his great uncle's body was buried by Buford was enough of a 
in fact, was a more significant reason for him to become a preacher than anything to do with the rape. I agree completely. I think that, that Francis discovering that his uncle was buried is one of the most important moments of the entire book. I think it's the most important thing of the whole yeah. book because it like basically made his prophecy come true. And he realized, almost like Oedipus, that he can't escape fate. It's like, oh God, my great uncle was right the whole time. Mm. Like No matter what he did, his uncle still got buried and not burned. And I think that like the fact that Raber is removed from the novel there's he is not involved at all in, in the the end of the novel whatsoever except that tarwater thinks of him fought more fondly after drowning bishop is i don't know something about that like says a lot to me about the arc of tarwater the fact that raber is not involved in the novel at all after bishop's drowning really speaks to the fact that tarwater is the the pivotal character in the entire story and like the, the raber's role in the novel was not to be like a main character but it was it was to develop tarwater's character to be like a foil and a contrast to the uncle who you know dies on the first page but somehow manages to be just this shadow over tarwater in the entire book in a way that's just like incredible yeah i agree um although i would say with raber like because I mean, it's hard to relate to any of these characters because they're so fucked up, but like Raber of all the characters because of his um intense secularism and like sense of self discipline kind of like made me relate to him on some level. Hmm. Um it it's hard for me to it's hard for me to feel like I wish O'Connor followed up with Raber, right? Because part of the foreshadowing that I liked so much was this I have this idea that the eyes will burn clean. Like I will raise a prophet that will burn your eyes clean. Right. And that seems so foreboding and so like worthwhile to see to fruition And Raber's eyes weren't burned clean. No, they, they weren't at all. In fact, he, I think it's the opposite. No, I mean, I think he, he, he probably went on with his life duller than he had before. Right. He probably fucked more. I, I don't even know if he did that. I think he lived his life, removed of passion removed of faith just as this materialist no but dullard. bishop's gone now his object of love is gone so he has to find that in a buxom woman i um who cares for speculating <laughs> about a fictional character but i can't imagine he even did that really? yeah i feel like he's just i feel like he's more traumatized than tarwater is because tarwater has a goal a mission a passion something whereas raber's life is devoid of that passion of that that spark that comes with religion because he's a materialist in the worst way but he succeeded in not baptizing his son yeah, which a, tarwater failed at he baptized him when he killed him yeah i thought that he was couldn't, that's he a good couldn't point. contain himself yeah he, he couldn't stop him but yeah, raber did and francis readily admits to the fact that he, that raber succeeded where he failed you know, that's a good point. I hadn't actually thought of that in this reading is that, you know, Raber attempted to drown his child. And who knows if he had tried to drown his child and yet succeeded, would he have baptized him involuntarily? I think the involuntary piece of the baptism is really interesting because it really is from that point forward that the character is not in control. Things are happening to him and it, it is kind of like fate at that point. He gets in the truck. It's not really his choice. The trucker just picks him up. And then the stranger picks him up. 
maybe it's Meeks, whoever it is, rapes him. And then he goes home and finds that the uncle has been buried. So really, like, after he drowns Bishop and the words just slip out, he no longer has, like, any volition in the book. Everything is happening to him. Do you think the stranger is in control? I don't know. I mean, it does feel like things are happening to him, but not because they are actually happening to him, right? Mm. Like, there is some sense, right, in the... But in the trucker's case, Francis has definitely controlled that situation, more or less, right? The trucker is is falling asleep. Francis is the active character in that role. In the rape situation, obviously, he's not. But afterwards, in his response to the rape, he burns down the area he's in, and then he goes and discovers the the fact that his his great uncle is buried, not burned, and then turns this whole thing into a burning bush situation, which you know the the stranger facilitates, but it doesn't because I don't the stranger isn't outside of Francis. He is an active part of Francis's psychology, so I actually do think Francis is still in control, but he is he has submitted to the idea of his madness. He is, you know, and this was something I shared a meme, the Pikachu surprised me of of uh you know, Flannery O'Connor sets this up the whole novel, right? It's just, you know, this is a a futile struggle against the the um passes down uh psychopathy, I don't know if that's the right word, but like just, you know, madness of of, you know, one's parents or or great-grandparents, and Francis receives this and acts on it, and, you know, you're surprised at the end when it happens the way you expect it to happen, but it does happen that way, and I do think this is still Francis's own making, make Francis's own making, you know, he, he, it, he's still able to make the choice not to be that. No, same. I think you're right, or it's a difference, but, subtle difference, but a difference that you're right in. It's not that things are happening to him it's more that he has succumbed to the madness because at the end of the book he does talk about how nothing can satisfy him how he is consumed by a hunger that his great uncle had and then he imagines heaven where jesus has multiplied the fish and the loaves and he says not even the bread of life can fill him or nothing can fill him but the bread of life and it's like at that point he's basically become the great uncle and I did want to add that, like, that was one of the literary tools that I appreciated about it. Appreciated about O'Connor was this correlation between physical hunger and spiritual hunger. That at the end of the novel was so delicious, right? It really was. It like really got me. And she uses she used that as a motif in a similar way to how Dickens uses the sea and the mob, right? Just and I'm plugging that because I love Dickens so much, but um, but Dick. wait, I I I dropped out. You say like Dick so much? Is that what I heard? Um, Dickens. I like Dickens too. Oh, you like Dick in? What about In and Out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. even fucking better. In and Out Burger, like not steak, just steak tips, just the tips, just the steak tips. What am I a fucking preteen? I'm sorry. Keep talking about books. I'll go back to I don't know. Um, the scene where he uh, sits down, he drinks what four beers and eats all those pork buns at lunch too. That yeah. I remember that got me. I was like, "Why is this fourteen-year-old child 
allowed to drink four cans of beer. Like nobody notices this. I I know it's the fifties. Maybe the they don't insatiable care. Insatiable hunger. The the hunger is you cannot fill it, and that goes back to the the uncle. He would go on those benders of drinking in madness, where you know what I mean. It was just something that he could not fill this void within him, and that you know he just could he. What, how do you describe what he would do? He would just completely give himself up to the madness, the hunger. Right, it's because he couldn't actually satisfy his hunger in the material sense, so he looks toward the spiritual in yeah. order to satisfy it. And Francis feels the same compulsion. Mm-hmm. And you get that because the whole story is told through Francis's point of view, you get that in a way that is a lot more visceral at the end of the novel than you do at the beginning. Because because the great uncle's struggles are told through Francis, so you only get the summary of what occurred. But when Francis is going through his, you know, from the trucker to the, you know, to the raper, to the, the uh, you know, the end of the novel, um, you get his real sense of, like, I cannot feed myself. I cannot be satisfied with what I eat. Every time I drink something, every time I eat something, I am not satisfied. And he's only satisfied when he finally comes to the conclusion that he is a prophet and needs to go to the city. Which is, which is like, that is O'Connor's masterstroke, right, at the end. That's what makes the novel worth it. Because up until that point, I was almost, I was disappointed with the second part of the novel, right? Because the first part of the setup was so good, and I was expecting so much, but because everything ended in like a frayed knot, I was because it was because O'Connor set everything up so like oh yeah, I was disappointed. It I was disappointed in the in the fact that like she didn't actually tie in the loose ends of the book. She really just um. Well, I feel like I'm talking to myself now, so it's not pointful. <laughs> The, let's talk about the pivotal point in this book, um, which, which is, is when Francis discovers that his great uncle was not burned and was actually buried. That was the that was the moment in which Francis becomes the preacher, as opposed to the agnostic. I guess he was before. So, what do we think of Francis's use of that for the like? the narrative and what do we think of his significance? Well, I think that it's something that he was consistently self-conscious about. And I think it's referenced a bunch of times. He tries to justify it throughout the novel to various characters. And then the final time he justifies it is he tries to justify it to the woman at the gas station who just like straight up calls him out on it. And I don't think he doesn't even necessarily justify it to her in that scene. He just gets flustered and kind of, Talks it over in his head. When he asked for the grape drink. Yeah, when he asked for that, <laughs> yeah. But like, so I think that it's, it's one of those things that, um, where he, he was like, well, I failed at this single task laid out before me by my uncle. My tasks were to bury him and to baptize Bishop. And he baptized Bishop beyond his own will. So that's one of those things that has just happened beyond him. He could not contain that, that spirit. And then... To come and see that his uncle had actually been buried by Buford, I think, is just kind of the nail in the coffin in terms of his um, the way in which that his nature is like his his being a prophet is just completely beyond his control. 
What do you think of the burning bush, though? Him setting the fire. Yeah. It's incredible imagery. I think he's just so, like, gone mentally at that point. Like, he's just been raped. He just finds out a massive shock that his uncle did not die or was not disposed of the way he thought he was, which is massively important religiously, that maybe he didn't even remember that he was the one that set the fire. He just looked back and was like, oh shit, the bush is on fire. Well, it's it's burning clean. Like, he burns clean the area with the, that he was raped in. Like, I think that's important that he he has to just completely burn that area. Even though he, well, from the book's perspective, like, he doesn't acknowledge the fact that he was raped in terms of how the book is written. Yeah, for sure. Sam, you had mentioned that you were unsatisfied with some uh, unfinished or plot points that were left undone or that you don't like it when there are questions that are left hanging yeah it's just like i thought that i thought that o'connor put a lot of thought into this piece right and normally you know sort of um sort of like tolkien right with this idea of a mythology where um unlike different strings are never taken up i understand that but because Flannery O'Connor seemed so intentional about her writing, I was expecting not a neat and clean ending, but certainly an intended ending, right? Whereas the second half of this novel felt, um, there felt like there was excess. There were things that were included that didn't need to be included. And that the conclusion itself was not only expected, but not in a way that was satisfying to other parts of the story. Right. Because why include this idea of the great uncle saying that, you know, I will raise a profit so your eyes will burn clean when Raber is not even a relevant character later on in the story? I take the opposite view. I actually like when there's questions left hanging just because in the character's point of view, oftentimes there isn't like a clean finish or end to these sort of things. And a more modern example that I can think of that people probably relate to because everybody's seen the show is game of thrones in the books it's like who gave the knife to kill um bran stark in the book you just never find out that question is the initial hook that gets you involved in the first like three chapters and then by the end of the third book you think you have kind of figured it out three thousand pages later but he just never tells you and I actually appreciate that. But that's a question. That's not all of the questions. Right? That's true. I know it is very different depending if the narrative is kind of coming to a conclusive end where I feel like this book is. So I guess I can understand the disappointment with that. But maybe the point is that he did not raise a profit to burn his eyes. Clean. And I mean, maybe that is the point, right? But it's just like it doesn't feel like a satisfying delivering of that question. And because, I'd agree, yeah. and because I have such, you know, like the first half of the novel was so good, right? Like I was so enthralled by it and I was so ready for the delivering of that. And I'll readily admit that maybe that was the point, right? Like maybe that was what Flannery was trying to deliver with, you know, with the end of the novel. But it just, you know, if I'm unsatisfied it's because Flannery wants me to be unsatisfied. And if that wasn't her intention, then she then she failed in that effort. I will say that the book does not feel complete. Something about it with the second half, as much as I love Flannery O'Connor, 
Like, it just doesn't... I see. I feel like just where the emotional punch lands is where it should have ended. Like, in her short stories, like, a good man is hard to find. Like, you hear the twist of it, of the, um, like, gang members, outlaws, and it's like, that's the end. But that's a this, banger, yeah. But in the in this, it's that's like, it's like there's the big emotional bang, or kind of one, two, three, of him going down a spiral at lunch, being unsatisfied by bread and drink. He drowns Bishop, gets raped, discovered it. So it's like, all these things are kind of happening, but... I think there's not the closure that we would want to feel. Like, there's still stuff happening, and it kind of ties the plot together thematically, but I agree that it doesn't feel like there's any closure to the book. Which is annoying, because he has a future. He's going to the town to be a prophet. Right. So that should satisfy us as the reader. Like, we should be like, yep. But I think we're dissatisfied. Like, he's never satisfied. He always wants the bread of life. We're left, like, what the hell? There's not more. But maybe that's it. Okay? I know. I, I think that is the point. Life is perpetually kind of unsatisfying. We are always seeking. Because it's yeah. never going to be like a book where there's just like everything's tied up in a bow at no. the end. And that's not what faith is about. No. And, and it's not even like I was looking for all things to be tied up in a bow. It's just for something to be tied in, you know, something to be answered, right? And I, you know, maybe that's Flannery's point that nothing is answered in those questions. I would like to know Flannery's point. I wonder if she ever talked about it. She probably didn't. She probably didn't. God, I would love that though. She, she seemed to be very critical of others and not very introspective of herself. So we'll, we'll see. Maybe, but you know, we'll do a deep dive into Flannery's Freudian psychology. I, lo- I honestly would love that probably more than almost any other author I've ever read in my life. She is a brilliant writer. Like yeah. I will say that of all things, there was not a time in her prose when I was saying, you know, oh, that was a mediocre choice, right? Everything felt, felt very intentional, and that's why I give a lot of leeway to the second half of this book, is because normally any other writer, I would write the second half off. I would call it a failure. I would say you clearly set up a certain set of expectations for your reader and you didn't deliver because you couldn't, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't think Flannery couldn't deliver. I think no. she 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 very intentionally did not deliver on this and that was there was a point behind it. And the fact that I can't get that point speaks more to my insufficiency than to hers. I also think that's kind of a theme in Southern Gothic is that it's drab, it's normally pretty sad and just disappointing. It's like the malaise of the South. It just seeps through everything. And I don't know, this just feels very... I was satisfied with the book. It wasn't what I was expecting at the end, but I was still pleased or satisfied with it. I was too. And like I think that I am consistently satisfied with ambiguity. I honestly generally would prefer an ambiguous end to almost anything over an end that feels obvious or you know even pandering or something like that and that's you know with movies with books i prefer ambiguity because that kind of leaves it up to yourself to think about after the fact and to take this take a novel or a story and you know analyze it from your own perspective analyze it from another character's perspective look at it how somebody else would view it and i think that's like 
more enjoyable, honestly, than a concrete uh, conclusion. So, all right. So I'm going to push back against that because, like, you know, when we read Tale of Two Cities, right, Sidney Carton dies at the end. And it's the difference between being handed a mystery candy and chewing on it and a caramel, right? Like, you know the caramel is going to be sweet. You know it's going to be tasty. And you can reflect on the experience of something you expect versus something you just don't. Yeah, they're both good. And I'm not saying it's not good. I'm not saying what Flannery does is not good. I know you're not. I'm just saying that, like, what the idea of getting what you expect, right, is something that is also a valuable reflective tool in saying that, like, okay, you know, like, for instance, if Flannery didn't include the rape, and she did include something that was a little bit, at least felt more cohesive to the novel in bringing up Francis's struggles to become a preacher. It would, it would, so rather than sit you on something that is a bit more general as to like, what did other characters think about the novel? It would be sitting on something more like, what does the spiritual perspective of Protestants say about how they like what god is right what do protestants actually think god is do they think it's dad do they think it's the you know do they think it's the community right like what is god and i think that the way flannery's novels portray god is it it because it's so ambiguous you really don't get to the narrow questions you only are left at the very general level and that is worthwhile but it's not as pointed as i wish it was well for a a very religious writer i appreciate that she doesn't have god enter the book like it's just the characters and their opinions and their thoughts and like mental illnesses that are playing into this it's not like god comes down from heaven which I'm sure a lesser writer would have done or would have incorporated. I personally like the ending. The only thing that I can really compare it to, just if I haven't read much Southern Gothic before this, was um, when we read Faulkner, As I Lay Dying. And I never thought I would say this, but she actually absolutely blows him out of the water. Like in terms of writing style and just how I feel about the characters at the end. And also the amount of thought that I put into the novel after reading it. I put way more thought into this one than I did into As I Lay Dying. Yeah, I mean, I think they're in, they're on in different planets. I mean, especially, consi- but also to his defense, like he was a much more prolific writer that was kind of more invested in like w- almost in world building, if that makes sense. Like, in, what, I don't remember the name of the county in his books, but yeah, I need to read more of Faulkner before I make a decision on him. Like, that's literally the first book I've ever read. I'd love to revisit him. I think you're right. She's a much better writer, and his books just like do not do anything for me. I'm really trying to like work through his books right now, and it's just not. I mean, I thought, connecting on an emotional or like intellectual level. I connected with some of Faulkner's prose in As I Lay Dying, especially at the beginning when they're talking about constructing the coffin. But in terms of like the characters. I felt way more connected to all, like, I felt connected to all of the characters. The yeah, crazy Tywater, uncle. Raber, the yep, uncle. Every yeah. single one of them. Absolutely. Whereas in the other, or in Faulkner's book, I did feel that they were almost kind of caricatures of Southerners. 
So I'm gonna just mm. I'm gonna be a Faulkner defender here. Defend I actually this. think that um I think that like Faulkner is as I lay dying in particular is for people who are already acquainted with the South, right? Like he's not there to introduce you to what the what Southern people are like. If you know what Southern people are like, you'll probably get it. If you don't, if you're a fucking unionist scum, you know, if you're a defender of the second American revolution, you're probably not going to um, understand the novel. It's not for you. Um, but <laughs> hell yeah dude yeah. keep it up <laughs> yeah so if you know if you don't understand the valiant and purposeful preservation of states rights that was the confederacy, confederacy in, in, this America, is what happens when you drink from sun up to sundown every yeah. single day <laughs> But my main point Sam, is... Sam, please don't drink all the time. Sam's going Faulkner mode. No. Apparently, apparently, I'm a better, you know, I'm a better podcast host when I'm drunk, so... Nobody said that. No one has ever said that <laughs> no to you. The, the I'm saying that to that. myself. The oh, stranger but, said that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that Faulkner is a, you know, he is someone who, if you if you already have dealt with Southern Gothic is a very valuable author to deal with. And I don't actually think as dying was written with the intent of it being a mass audience, although it did become a classic. I just want to, before I, I just think this book was better than as I lay dying, but as like comparing author to author, I definitely need to read more, more Faulkner before I can make a decision. I did. I, I mean, yeah, I, I think it's not, I, I kind of think it's not fair to compare those two like one-to-one. I just definitely like Flannery O'Connor's writing style more than Faulkner. I agree. I yeah. think Flannery is a much more appealing writer, and I also think that Faulkner, the way I'd put it is, uh, Faulkner is more dynamic than Flannery, right? Because yes. Faulkner actually writes, he intentedly wrote in different styles. He did not want to write a novel the same way he wrote the previous one. And Flannery is, she's a, she's a, it's a good one note, but she writes in one note, right? Yeah, and that may be to his detriment at times. Yeah, but he is willing to take the risk. And that's something that, like, you know, I respect about novelists more than anything else, is are they willing to take risks out of their comfort zone? And, and of course, she died in her mid-30s, so. All right, boys, we got to wrap this thing up. Next week, we are reviewing Steal This Day by Christopher DiLoretto. <laughs> Uh, 12 simple exercises to claim your time and see the glory in everything. He is a friend and the creative director of the Knock Underground, and we're very excited to have him on. So uh, be on the lookout for that episode. Thank you for everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Good night, everyone. What's wrong with that? Chris T. <laughs> Did I not say Chris D. Loretto? Chris D. Loretto. D. 